This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Hello, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Welcome to the Larry Kudlow Show. Great to be with you today. Here we are. New York, at least. It's a little a little rainy, a little bit gloomy. But our spirits will never flag. But, but... New York DA, the left-wing rogue, New York District Attorney Alvin Bragg, finally speared the white whale, Moby Dick. After trying and trying and trying, he finally got the jury, the grand jury, to convict a ham sandwich, that being Mr. Trump. And um looked like it was dead. They lied to everybody, said the grand jury would be off for another month. But um, the indictment came, had a certain Soviet-style feel to it, you know, kind of dead of night. All of a sudden, I think a lot of people were shocked over it. Um, It's totally politics. You know, it's totally politically motivated. I'm sure you've seen lots of commentary and covering it on the news. But this is just pure politics, you know indicting a former president basically for nothing. It's an outrage. By the way, it sends the wrong signal to the rest of the world. It makes the U.S. look weak. makes the U.S. look like some kind of Latin American banana republic. I mean, it's very small beer, right? There's a million issues out there. Inflation, recession, banks, chaos at the border, Ukraine, China, TikTok protecting Taiwan, parents and education for their kids, stopping all this crazy, woke nonsense. But here we have Alvin Bragg chasing after Donald Trump. You know, this whole rigmarole with uh, the porn star, whatever she is, Stormy Daniels. I mean, Stormy Daniels was uh, over 15 years ago, 15 years ago. And Alvin Bragg and all the far-left crazy Democrats are still chasing it down. To get Trump. To get Trump. The former Playboy model Karen McDougal. Same thing. About 15 years ago. I mean, this is the Trump derangement syndrome, which I guess is an incurable disease. No human cure. There's no vaccination for the Trump derangement syndrome. Now, I've talked to a lot of people. We had uh, former Attorney General Bill Barr on the on the TV show yesterday. He was he was terrific, and of course he was highly critical of this uh, decision. But I just want to say, you know, from my standpoint, right? I, I, I'm not the lawyer, and there'll be details of the case. Uh, we're going to talk to Andrew McCarthy, former prosecutor himself. We're going to talk to Greg Jarrett. Uh, legal analysts. So we'll get a lot of details and discussions about that. And then we're going to talk about the economy and the stock market, as we always do uh, on this show. But the Trump story is obviously still a huge story. Um, I mean, the thing is, and I will say this, uh, I have not, let's see, I we had, my wife and I had dinner uh, with uh, Mr. Trump about a month ago, five weeks ago, down in Florida at Mar-a-Lago. He was in great shape, looked great. Gave Judy a big hug, and uh, we, he and I had a lovely talk. 
And I have spoken to him once on the phone since then uh, to help out on a speech he gave to CPAC. I haven't talked to him this week. I haven't talked to him since the news broke uh, Thursday. But I want to say this. The guy is still standing. All right? He is still standing. Through all this nonsense, all this crazy far-left nonsense. I mean, he's had to suffer through, right, think about this, two impeachments. Of course, no convictions, but two impeachments. The whole Steele dossier business, the Russian hoax, the Mueller investigation, special counsel now on classified documents. They've investigated tax returns. Various Democrats have held investigations. You know, nothing Heimer's like Nadler and Schiff. You got the J6 committee hearings, uh, the Georgia elections. All this stuff, never never seen anything like this before. Nothing compares to what they've thrown, the far left has thrown, at uh, former President Donald Trump. But he is still standing. That's the point I want to make. He is still standing. Now, the lefties, they hate him. But they hate him, I think, because of his many, many accomplishments. And he is a fighter. He will never accept the D.C. swamp. He will never accept the so-called power elite in Washington or elsewhere. Trump's a fighter. Trump is a fighter. And that's why the left fears him so much. If he were to get reelected to a second term, he will once again clean house in Washington. And that includes, by the by, the federal bureaucracy as well, the so-called deep state, both domestically and in terms of foreign policy and, of course, foreign intelligence. He will clean house, and they know it. And they are petrified, scared to death. And that's why the lefty Democrats continue to do everything they humanly can to prevent him from being president a second time. They will do whatever it takes, whether it's legal or illegal. They'll do it. Trust me. They'll do it. Now, I don't know about the details. As I say, we'll talk to McCarthy about it. We'll talk to Greg Jarrett about it in a little while. But ultimately, there's no question in my mind that Donald Trump is at war with the lefty Democrats They want to get Trump, and they want to stop Trump. That's their whole policy. Go and get him and stop him from getting back into the White House. And then do everything they can, as I say, legally or illegally, however they have to do it. Now, let me tell you, you I worked for Trump. Make no bones about that. I love the guy personally. I'm not taking sides in the presidential race. There are a lot of fine Republicans running. Trump, DeSantis will run. Uh, Nikki Haley, maybe my pal Mike Pompeo. I loved my term, three years as the uh, director of the National Economic Council. Worked with the president every day. Saw him every day, two or three times a day sometimes. 
But he achieved so much in four years. He cut taxes. He deregulated the economy. He created an economic boom. He brought down poverty. He boosted minority groups. He boosted blue-collar workers. He boosted the lower middle class. Everybody got a tremendous booster shot from his tax cuts and deregulation. Their real incomes after inflation and taxes had basically been falling for 20 years. Under Trump, they boomed. Take-home pay boomed under Donald Trump. That is why he was so popular. He delivered energy independence with affordable gasoline prices and electricity and utility bills. And that energy independence meant America would not have to listen to any of the guff from Vladimir Putin or Hugo Chavez or Lula in Brazil or even our occasional friends in Saudi Arabia. We were energy independent. Now we are energy dependent with a crazy, insane green climate war against fossil fuels. There was no inflation under Trump. Virtually no inflation under Trump. Today, inflation is still public enemy number one. That, according to a recent Fox poll, 90% of Americans believe inflation is the number one problem. Trump was America's greatest supporter of Israel. He successfully negotiated the Abraham Accords. He made good on his promise to move the American embassy to Jerusalem. Donald Trump was the guy who rang the bell on China. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Loud and clear, China is a threat. China is our adversary, our enemy, the Chinese Communist Party. It was Trump who rang that bell for Americans. It was Trump who showed folks how tariffs or the threat of tariffs can work for reciprocal trade deals. He pulled one off in North America and Japan and South Korea. He even used the threat of tariffs to control the southern border by bringing a socialist Mexican president back to his senses and the Remain in Mexico policy and the wall and catch and release, catch and deport, rather, instead of just catch and release. Trump showed people how to be tough how to be strong. There were no new wars on his watch. If Trump were president today, Putin would never have gone into Ukraine. Never. We would never have cut and run in Afghanistan the way Biden cut and ran. Never would have happened. Because he was tough and strong and because foreign leaders 
both our allies as well as our enemies like China and Russia, they knew how tough he was. They feared him. You know, Machiavelli always said it is better to be feared than loved. Trump understood that. No new wars on his watch. He showed people how to negotiate. Right? From his own business experience down through the years in the private sector. He made deals with Congress. He brought in the private sector for Operation Warp Speed's COVID vaccines, which probably saved the country and the economy. Don't forget he wiped out ISIS in Syria. Wiped out ISIS in Syria. He took out al-Baghdadi, killed him. He ran Soleimani off the road, took him out forever, the Iranian terrorist. These were Trumpian accomplishments that these left-wing Democrats are trying to dish up something that happened 15 years ago. We didn't even know if it happened. Trying to dredge up crazy old election campaign laws and other things that have been put away by other prosecutors, by Democratic prosecutors in New York, in Washington. This jerk, Alvin Bragg, the George Soros puppet, Alvin Bragg, going after Trump. Trump was a terrific president in just four years. Trump reincarnated the great Ronald Reagan, for whom I also work. He reincarnated the great Ronald Reagan's dictum of peace through strength. Trump updated the Reagan doctrine. He modernized the Reagan doctrine. He left America a happier, more prosperous place after his four years. Now, I don't know what the future holds. I'm not a lawyer. But I would just say to you, having spoken to the former president any number of times, that he believes that his work for America is not yet done. That's why he is running for president again. And I think, you know, millions, tens and tens of millions of Americans around the country agree that his work is not yet done. America looks like it's in decline, but really the decline is this big government socialism provided by Joe Biden and his cronies Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and the far left running the White House. And look what they've done. They've taken a great economy and broken it. They've taken our international strength and weakened it. They've got us in this incredible endless war in Ukraine. They cut and ran in Afghanistan. They've given American households, typical blue-collar, working families, ordinary American folks living around the country. They can't make ends meet. They can't afford gas. They can't afford groceries. They can't afford electricity. The ideologues, the woke ideologues running this White House, they've given us a banking crisis. This is just in two years, two years plus. And that's why Trump, who is still standing, no matter what happened, 
no matter what Alvin Bragg wants to do, and I can't predict the courtroom, but he is still standing. And his view is he has more work to do to help America, or let me say, make America great again, again. Make America great again, again. That is the positive, constructive Donald Trump agenda. Alvin Bragg, just get out of the way. Just get out of the way so we can restore this country back to greatness. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. We will be back after this short message. This is the Larry Kudlow Show on 77 WABC. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. By the way, just to fill in some blanks, you know, don't forget Fox Business Network. The name of the show is Kudlow. And we are four to five, four to five. PM every day, Monday through Friday, on Fox Business Network. Name of the show is Cup. And if for some reason you can't uh, get to us at four, why just text message your favorite nine year old and she will show you how to DVR the show. You'd never miss a thing. And here on this uh, wonderful radio show, you can live stream us on the internet. Live stream us on the internet. So it'll run all around the country, wherever you are throughout the world. Wherever you may be in the solar system or the Milky Way, you can get us by live streaming us. It's called LarryCudlowShow.com. LarryCudlowShow.com. You'll have no problem. Now, back to this uh, Trump uh, legal fiasco from Alvin Bragg. I mean, I had uh, Bill Barr, William Barr, former attorney general. Bill Barr was attorney general twice, by the way, as you may know. He was on the show yesterday. He was he was brilliant. I love Bill Barr. Wrote a great book. But Bill called this a pathetically weak legal theory. He called it an abomination. He called it an abuse of prosecutorial power. He said this would never have been brought against anybody else. I think that part is totally, definitely true. I mean, there's a double standard here. There's a double. I mean, they didn't bust Hillary Clinton. There's all kinds of Democrats out there. They didn't bust them. They're doing what? I don't know. The As most people, I think most intelligent people reading up on the news, the predecessor of Alvin Bragg, Cy Vance, I know Cy Vance Jr. Actually, I knew Cy Vance's father. Cy Vance Sr. was a fine man. I actually like Cyrus Vance Jr. But I'm just saying Cy Vance had to look at this, uh, at this uh, Trump suit and passed on it. The Federal Election Commission in Washington looked at it and passed on. It's not a problem. I mean, it's the Trump Organization. I I don't know what payments were and were not made. But it's the Trump Organization. So what the Trump Organization does is its own business. has nothing to do with elections. The Justice Department looked at it, and they passed on it. So this guy Bragg trying to gin it up. Now, we'll get Andy McCarthy's coming from National Review and Fox News and Greg Jarrett. We'll see what they say, if there's a real if there's a real case here to be made. 
But you can't turn a misdemeanor into a felony. You can't turn a local misdemeanor into a federal felony unless something really wild is out there. So I know what this is. This just get Trump, stop him from becoming president because he will clean house. He will clean the swamp in Washington and elsewhere. And I'm rooting for him. That's right. I am rooting for Donald Trump. All right, folks. I'm Cudlow. We'll be back in a couple of minutes with Andy McCarthy. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is The Larry Kudlow Show. And it gives me great pleasure to welcome to the show for the first time Senator Eric Schmidt from the great state of Missouri. Senator Schmidt, thank you, sir. I saw you speak here in New York at the uh, John Katsimatidis event, and uh, you were terrific. And I know you've been on the well, TV. I know you've been on the TV show. We want to get you back on the TV show. So what are you thinking about this Trump story, sir? What what, what are you thinking? <laughs> well, for, well, first of all, let me say, you've got to be one of the hardest working guys in the business. I mean, every, the TV or the radio you're on, which is great, been a great asset uh, to the country. So Thank you. great to be on with you on the radio. Um, well, my assessment of this is it's just a political prosecution, right? It's a, mm. it's a prosecution in search of a crime, a Soros-funded DA, who doesn't do anything about violent crime in New York City is is using this to score political points, and it's incredibly dangerous, Larry, for for the country moving forward. I mean, if this is, you know, we're going to be prosecuting political opponents. Uh, that's third world banana republic kind of stuff, yeah. and uh, I think I think most most Americans see it for what it is, but it's uh, obviously it's a mess and, uh, and and a joke. You getting any feedback from your uh, folks in Missouri about this? Yeah, people are upset about it. I mean, I think, um, you know, as far as the case goes, I mean, this is the kind of thing that's been passed on. It's past the statute of limitations. There's no, there, again, there's no crime that's being sought here. This is political retribution. Um, and so most people that I talk to just are, are kind of stunned, actually, that this is where we're at now in America, that you've got, you know, a prosecutor who, by the way, ran on doing something like this, specifically to President Trump. And now actually moving forward with that, it's just a, uh, it's a very dangerous road. This is the kind of stuff, by the way, if you saw it happening in another country, our State Department would be warning people about it. Mm. And, uh, but that's the state of play now. And the Democrats, what's, what's amazing, Larry, is we've gotten, this is no longer your grandfather's Democrat Party. I mean, they are, uh, believe, you know, we've got political prosecutions. I was just testifying in front of the House Weaponization Committee for the lawsuit that I filed as Attorney General of Missouri, which was, the Biden administration colluding with big tech companies to censor speech. It happened. It was Fauci's regime. It was the FBI, uh, you know, planting the, 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 uh, uh, the seeds of doubt with the big tech companies about the Hunter Biden laptop story, even though they already had the laptop. Um, they engage in censorship. They want to add states to the union. They want to pack the Supreme Court. Uh, I mean, this is a, this is a very extreme party now with an extreme ideology that doesn't resemble anything of the, old Democrat Party, I suppose. You know, you have to wonder, you talk about the weaponization, which is a really big issue. And um, the good news is you've got some good people in the House, Jim Jordan, uh, Comer, and others who are going after that stuff. I mean, maybe that's where you were testifying. I don't know. But, um, uh, you know, I don't see these Democrat prosecutors ever. I mean, why why doesn't Brad go against Hillary Clinton? She's a New Yorker. Okay, she, 
she bleached she bleached out <laughs> three or four thousand classified emails. Now you could say, well, that was way back in t- whenever it was, 2013, 2014. You know, this um, Stormy Daniels thing goes back to 2006. It's 15 years old. I mean, no, nobody even remembers it except for the fact that this has been brought back by Alvin Bragg. I mean, it's a crazy story. No one cares. People are worried about inflation. That's what the Fox News poll, <laughs> Senator Schmidt, said 90% of Americans, the number one issue was inflation. Not do- right. not Donald Trump's, um, you know, shall we say, mistakes in life. No, it's, it, and it just shows how out of touch they are, but they're obsessed with it. And I think it represents something larger, right? I mean, I think going after President Trump, people look around and they say, they see all these people doing things. They see, um, you know, a lot of these, you know, look at uh, um, Silicon Valley Bank. You know, you see people getting away with this kind of stuff that there actually should be something done to people, but they don't. They don't pursue those folks, right? But they've got to go after President Trump on this, you know, ridiculous structure, which is a political prosecution. People see it for what it is, which is partisan politics. But you're right. The issues that, you know, I just won my election last fall, right? So, and I ran three statewide races in Missouri in six years. So I've been around a state that you've got, you know, a bunch of different regions and urban and suburban and exurban and rural. And what people care about are those pocketbook issues. Uh, They care about energy costs. They care about inflation. And it turns out, you know this better than anybody, Larry, if you spend trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars and you cut off domestic energy supply, uh, you get higher costs for everything. It's a, There's a formula for it. It's not like a tornado or an act of God. You, you, you know what causes it, and that's exactly what this Biden administration has done. It's made it harder for working families to make ends meet. They pay more every time they go to the grocery store, every single week. And again, it's because of these disastrous policies. And you know, when President Trump was in office and you were, you know, helping shape policy in the White House, we had, you know, wage growth across the board. It didn't matter your race or your your creed or your gender. It didn't matter. Everybody was doing better. Our economy was booming. Um, and we better take it seriously. I mean, serve on the Senate Armed Services Committee, too, Larry. China is the real deal. They are not messing around. They, they're building islands in the South China Sea that are completely and totally militarized now. Um, uh, they're playing for keeps, and we've got to be ready for that challenge. But so, Senator Eric Schmidt, this is great because um, I was very impressed when you spoke at that Katsimatidis event here in New York. You were talking about these issues. Uh, we just had a Fox News poll. Number one issue, 90% of Americans, the number one issue is inflation. We've also seen, Senator Schmidt, uh, a series of polls from the University of Chicago sponsored by the Wall Street Journal that shows, number one, uh, people are very discouraged about the economy. Number two, an extraordinary um, pessimism that spread through the country. Pessimism. I mean, people and 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 also a decline in things like patriotism or a decline yeah. in the willingness to work. I don't know if you saw that series in the Wall Street Journal. It's very interesting. And it's the University of Chicago. It's not a partisan poll. They do social science polling. But between, you know, concerns about the economy and an overall pessimistic view, you know, the... 
With crime running rampant in New York, you need to keep yourself and your family safe. Obtaining your concealed carry firearm licenses can be difficult and time-consuming. That's where MyFirstPistol.com comes in. They'll help you secure your concealed carry license. If you're looking for a pistol, premise, rifle, or shotgun license, call 347-559-7052. 347-559-7052. You must have a valid firearm license issued by the NYPD to purchase, possess, or shoot a handgun or pistol in NYC. Your kids in the future will not do better than you will. Even college education is not something worthwhile. Now, this is the stuff we need to be talking about, and, and I think this is the stuff where Republicans, particularly new Republicans like yourself, need to focus on. The Democrats would love to distract us with these crazy lawsuits against Trump, but we need to talk to the country about a future agenda of prosperity and growth. I couldn't agree more. And the, those numbers were pretty startling in that in that poll. It showed, you know, the you know the folks being polled of how important that you know patriotism that's way down, uh, religion is way down, right. the, the uh, desire to start a family that's way down, right. what community means that's way down. Those are big cultural issues, Larry. And I think what we've got to get back to is is this belief. I mean, I think civics. We've taken civics out of the classroom now and replaced it with this really divisive. Uh, critical race theory that pits students against one another, kids being forced to participate in privilege walks. That's a divisive thing. And what we've got to keep in mind, I think it's so important, is that America is the, is the greatest country in the history of the world because we believe in an idea. We believe that you know we're born with certain rights. Government didn't give us those rights. They come from God. Government's only purpose is to protect those God-given rights so people can pursue their dreams. They can pursue happiness, which is a very uniquely American idea. And if we get back to that, I think that can unify the country. That's not what the Democrats want to do. That's not what the progressives want to do. It's what the liberals want to do. But that's our path forward so that everybody, no matter what their background is, can achieve great things and actually achieve the American dream. I mean, I grew up in a blue-collar area. My dad worked seven days a week in the midnight shift. Mm -hmm. I'm proud that the Republican Party is fighting for working families now. And uh, like you said, I'm going to help lead that charge in the Senate. Senator Schmidt, you got a few more minutes for us. I got to take commercial break. You got a couple more minutes sure. for us because you were yeah, terrific. Yeah. You are so articulate. This is just why I wanted you on this show, and this is why I got to get you back on the uh, TV show. Also, people need to hear these messages. We're talking to Senator Eric Schmidt, uh, Republican of Missouri. He's in his first term, and you can tell folks that he knows whereof he speaks. I'm Cudlow. We'll take a short break. Senator Schmill will be right back with us to talk some more about a future agenda to help America. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Cudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Cudlow, and we're talking with Senator Eric Schmidt of Missouri. Senator Schmidt, I'm going to pick up where, where you left off because I think that the Republicans, as we move towards um, – the 2024 election cycle for the Senate and the White House and keeping the House. We need we need a prosperity agenda. We need, uh, you know, to be able to say to blue collar working folks, whoever they are, whatever their race is, wherever they live, these are working folks who are falling behind of inflation and taxes and they're living check to check in many, many cases. Ninety percent in the Fox poll, by the way, incredible story. Anyway, sir, we we need a we need a growth agenda. We need a prosperity agenda. Uh, whoever the presidential candidate is, uh, you know, we need to get it out of the Senate too. And you will be a leader of this. But let's talk about this uh, prosperity agenda. 
Yeah, look, you know this. You helped lead the charge on this. I grew up as sort of a son of the Reagan revolution. I'm 47 years old, right? So I was growing up and, and I was watching, you know, Ronald Reagan and Pat Buchanan and Jack Kemp and all these, you know, articulating a message that, that you know, for, for everybody, not just for a select group of people, but for everybody. And what we saw was anytime you had broad-based tax relief, it was under JFK or Ronald Reagan or President Trump, mm-hmm. uh, we, we saw an explosion in, you know, income and, by the way, if you care about what the revenue to you broaden the base of the economy, more people are working, more people are making more money. That's the kind of prosperity you want. You can't tax your way into prosperity. And all we see is like Groundhog Day from Biden in this budget are trillions and trillions of dollars worth of new taxes. Or letting, by the way, tax cuts for small businesses expire. You know, most companies, as you know, Larry, are not big corporations. They're, they're small family businesses. These are people that... They come here or they, they start a business with my grandfather's story. He start, came back from World War II. He started a small butcher shop, right? And he was able to provide for his family. That's how that's, – that's 90% of the, where the jobs are in, in the United States or in these small businesses. We've got to let them have some relief so they can invest in people and their inventory. That's the kind of stuff we need to talk about because it makes that – I'm working two jobs. Uh, you know, who can't seem to get ahead, it, it eases the burden. She can send her kid to the school that she wants to send her kid to. This is the kind of stuff we need to rally behind. And by the way, the, a lot of the frustration, Larry, I think that you see out there is because <clears throat> there's such a lack of accountability. Uh, because in our system of self-government, the idea is, you know, you spread out this power so that it was, you know, federalism and the different branches of government, separation of powers, so that no one branch or agency or person ever got too powerful, right? It was all meant to protect individual liberty. But what they see right now is the growth of this administrative state mm. where these unelected bureaucrats from agencies you've never heard of mm. have, you know, a massive amount of power over people's lives. We've got to get to that. And one of the things that I want to work on is fundamentally dismantling this administrative state and put the power back, you know, in Congress where you can then, look, if we should have to vote on these ridiculous rules and regs, because if you don't like the way I vote on it, you can send me home or you can send me back if you do like it. Right now, you have no idea who the deputy undersecretary of whatever alphabet soup agency is, and they're not they're not accountable to anybody. We've got to put an end to that. Or defund them. Or Yeah, that's right. Or you or use uh West you know, West Virginia versus EPA. Unless there's a congressional right. law, right? You were uh you were attorney general of Missouri, if I'm not mistaken, so you know about this stuff. Um, I mean, you're yeah, absolutely right. The, listen, I, yeah, I don't know if you know this. I worked for Reagan. I was OMB deputy. Jack, no, I know. I know. Jack Kemp and, and Art Laffer were mentors of mine, the late Jack Kemp. God, we miss him. Laffer, fortunately, is still around. Uh, but Reagan understood this too. Trump understood this. Trump's trying to de- and a lot of the things Trump's talking about recently, you know, before this crazy, uh, uh, trial, um, was to go after the deep state, the so-called deep state, right. both the That's intelligence, right. foreign policy, but also the, the you see Joe Manchin, right? Oh, let's all cry for Joe Manchin. Joe figured out that the Inflation Reduction Act, inaptly named, which was such a terrible bill that he voted for, now he sees that the bureaucratic deep state in the Biden administration is turning it into a big giveaway to green everything. Well, Joe, did you read the bill? <laughs> I mean, come on. Right. It was right there in yeah. front of him. Now he's writing op-ed pieces against it. What the hell did he vote for well, it for? That's right. That's right. Well, I, that's you know, one of the young 
but obviously that all the, the great things that our Reagan administration led to you know the the the, the uh, most robust economy that we had it was a renewal of America and that you know people had hope again and I think you know under President Trump one of the things that people don't you know your team worked on was you know they had this two for one rule which you know if any agency was going to propose a new rule, they had to pull back two. Mm-hmm. And then guess what happened on day one? Joe Biden just got rid of it. We need to put that into law. And so one of the things I'm going to be fighting, let's put that in law. And why two for one? How about 10 for one or mm-hmm. five for one? Whatever mm-hmm. it is. Mm-hmm. But that would go a long way. I think get rid of some of these agencies that if they ever had a purpose, they don't have it anymore. I was also the attorney general that brought the first COVID vaccine mandate lawsuit. And we won because think of this. OSHA was an agency created to make sure forklifts people when they back up, not force a medical procedure on 80 million people, but that's what they were trying to do. And so we've got to put a stop to this. And, uh, you know, the RAINS Act is another concrete example, Larry, where essentially, like I said, if an agency is going to propose a rule, Congress ought to have to vote on it. And so, and guess what would happen? Most of this stuff, if it would, would just, no one's going to vote for these ridiculous rules. It wouldn't. And, uh, but they get, they get away with it because, and a lot of people in Congress like it that way, right? Because they can say, well, I voted for the greatest bill in the world, but I can't believe the EPA did this. And we got to put an end to that, put the responsibility back in the Article One branch where people are actually accountable and pull this back. So I think if you had, you have tax relief, administrative reform, good energy policy, right? We have all the energy we'll ever need under our feet. I'm an all-the-above kind of guy, but there's no way we should be begging Saudi Arabia for oil. There's no way we should be begging Venezuela for oil. There's no way we should be sending our strategic petroleum reserves to China. And that's all what's happening under Joe Biden. It's a national security concern, too. And so bringing those supply chains home, I think, makes a lot of sense. But certainly having a good energy policy, good tax policy, and administrative reform would go a long way to providing more opportunity and prosperity for everybody. Uh, Spot on, Senator Eric Schmidt. Spot on. By the way, I mean... Kevin McCarthy and Steve Scalise uh, have ginned up this H.R. 1, the uh, Lower Energy Cost Act. I think it's terrific. And, by the way, it has yeah. all the permitting reform changes. It moves the NEPA permitting stuff back to where Trump had it. This is something that we did at the National uh, Economic Council, you know, six months or a year, no more than two years for any single project. Uh, Biden decimated that, but this bill would bring all that stuff back and it would allow you to drill for minerals. You know, we're going to have electric cars. Let's not do it in China. Let's do it right here, you know, in the Iron Range in Minnesota, for example, near Lake Superior. Anyway, Scalise put this thing together. I was down in Washington on Monday and Tuesday uh, unveiling it or helping him a second time. The first time was on my show. But that's exactly where we need to go. Now, in the Senate, you all should, you know, try to get something going on this. I agree. And one of the things we've been, you know, there, there hasn't been a lot happening in the Senate, uh, but that, that'll obviously change as the year goes on. But one of the things we found is, you know, I'm on the Commerce Committee, too. We were able to sink Gigi Sohn, who was this radical mm-hmm. that they were putting up for the FCC, mm-hmm. uh, Phil Washington, who had no experience to run the FAA. We sank his nomination, too. So we're doing that with Republicans sticking together, going after these, again, these sort of really radical picks by Joe Biden, but also some Democrats coming along. And we ought to move that stuff forward if we can, because it puts people like John Tester and Joe Manchin and places like that uh, have to make some tough decisions about mm-hmm. where they're going to be. But but more importantly than the partisan stuff, uh, it's good for the country. Like it, just, there's jobs associated with this. There's independence. Think about if we could if we could export liquefied natural gas mm-hmm. to Europe. 
you know, provide for their energy needs. They're no longer dependent on, you know, some bad actors. It's good for our economy. We should be the world's largest net exporter of energy. And mm-hmm. we can do it. Mm-hmm. We can absolutely do it. It doesn't need to be this way. And so I think that's a, that's a, that's a great opportunity for the United States of America. And those are the things we ought to be moving forward. I'm glad the House is moving stuff, and we're going to do everything we can in the Senate. I had um, uh, the New Ways and Means Chair, Jason Smith, on uh, also from your state. I got yeah. something about the water in Missouri. You guys are producing some great public <laughs> servants. Uh, but anyway, you know, um, Kevin McCarthy in his letter to Joe Biden in terms of the budget savings for the debt ceiling increase included workfare, work requirements, Senator Schmidt, which is to me so important. And by the way, would slash the budget because uh, you get folks, you know, moving from welfare to work. Um, Jason Smith, very keen on this, chairman of the Ways and Means Committee. I was thrilled that McCarthy had it in. The Bidens um, don't want this stuff. They dismantled all those Bill Clinton, Newt Gingrich reforms. But I just wondered if you can stir something up in the Senate. Workfare, I mean, not only is it a budget issue, it's really a moral issue. It really goes to the heart. You mentioned the American idea before. I mean, work is godly. The dignity of work is part of the American idea. Right, and, the, and what you've seen really from the Biden administration is a uh, is really an attack on merit. You know, like this idea that mm. that if you work hard enough and you play by the rules, that you can succeed, and that, that it sort of undermines what their agenda undermines that that ethos and that at work ethic. And uh, I agree. And Jason Smith, by the way, is a yeah, he's a, a Missouri guy, really smart, another relatively young guy, and uh, you know, I know he's working hard on that committee. He'll provide great leadership. It's just. It's, a, it's an opportunity, I think, again, for us to hit the reset button because, you know, the federal government's taking in $5 trillion. I mean, it, we don't have a revenue problem. We have a spending problem, and we got to get our priorities straight. Well, all right. Senator Eric Schmidt, you're awful nice. Give us some time on the weekend. We appreciate it. Um, keep that agenda in mind, sir. You got, you know, I'm, I will. The House is going to do it, but they need bolstering from the Senate. They need bolstering from the Senate. And I think um, that's right. You'd be terrific at it. Thank you very much for your time, folks. That's Senator Eric Schmidt of Missouri. I'm Cudlow. We're still doing radio. Most fun I ever had. Now, the other side of the break, we're going to talk to Andy McCarthy of National Review and Greg Jarrett of Fox News about this insane Trump lawsuit by this insane left-wing progressive George Soros-based Alvin Bragg. I'm Cudlow. I want to liberate Trump. Liberate him. Don't don't hog time. Liberate him. We'll be right back. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. It's a great pleasure to be with you. And I want to bring in my pal, Andrew McCarthy. He just dropped off the phone. We're going to pick him up in a minute. You know, I want to talk about the lead uh, with Andy McCarthy. I had Bill Barr, former Attorney General Bill Barr, who was twice Attorney General, actually, uh, once under, under Bush and more recently under Donald Trump. And we interviewed him on the on the Fox Business Show last night, and he was yeah, terrific, as always. Uh, anyway, we, we'll bring – here's Andy McCarthy. We got him. He's a former district U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. He's a contributing editor of my alma mater, National Review. 
and he's a senior fellow at the National Review Institute and a best-selling author. The book is Ball of Collusion, The Plot to Rig an Election and Destroy a Presidency. Boy, how apropos is that? Anyway, Andy McCarthy, welcome back. Thank you. Larry, great to be with you. You know, Bill Barr, uh, had Bill Barr on the TV show yesterday. He called this Brad case pathetically weak. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Legal theory. And he went through the politics of, of course, there you know, out to get Trump. But he said, Andy McCarthy said, look, the, this uh, abuse of prosecutorial power uh, to bring a case that would not be brought against anyone else, they're going to. They're going after the man, not a crime. He said the legal theory is pathetically weak. And then here's the key point, uh, Andy. Um, this idea that Cohn reimbursed his legal payments is a false idea that had violated a misdemeanor statute in the first instance against false documents. He said, I actually don't think that's a valid claim because the statute actually requires that it be done with the intent to defraud. And there is no intent. So pick it up from there because, I mean, they'll unseal the the documents, I guess, on Tuesday, and we'll learn a lot more. But you know, we know a lot from the Times and the Wall Street Journal coverage. What do you what do you say to all this? What's the theory? I mean, what's Bragg think he's doing? Well, I I agree with uh, everything that Bill said to you, Larry. I think uh, he's he's entirely right about that. Uh, I also think the easiest way I, I would make two points, mm-hmm. which is like all the all the things that are simple, maybe for non-lawyers um, that you need to know about this to make up your mind about it. One is we have to stop thinking about Bragg as a law enforcement official, as a district attorney. He is an elected progressive Democrat. Mm. Um, his is this is not like a federal prosecutor where you get appointed by the president and then the Senate bets you to make sure that you're not going to use your power in a partisan way. This is an actual partisan process. He's an elected progressive Democrat in Manhattan who ran on the proposition that he would get Trump mm-hmm. if they elected him. So he ran promising that he was going to use his power against Trump not promising that he was going to, you know, enforce the law without fear or favor. So so we should stop thinking of him as a district attorney uh, and start remembering that he's an elected progressive Democrat who's wielding his power exactly the way he said he would. Uh, And the second thing I would say is, and this goes to the former attorney general's point about uh, the campaign finance laws. I think he's right also about the misdemeanor, but just to cut to the chase, The federal authorities who have uh, jurisdiction over campaign finance violations investigated Trump very thoroughly. My old office, the Southern District of New York, was trying to make a case, and they looked at it and they decided there wasn't enough evidence. They they found nothing to prosecute. Bragg looked at the same set of facts. He doesn't have jurisdiction to enforce federal campaign finance laws, and he is indicting 
34 felony counts. Mm. Mm. 34. Just to just to give people a sense of this, um, I think I charged the mass murdering terrorist, the blind shake in the 1990s. I think I charged five counts. <laughs> yeah. uh, may have been may have been one or two more. You know, there's Justice Department guidance, Larry, that tells prosecutors um, you don't want to overwhelm the jury with charges. There's always the, the fear of an abuse of power where what you don't have with quality, you try to make up with make up for with quantity. So, you know, you basically you don't have much of a case, but you figure out a way to charge, you know, three, four dozen charges. So you convey to the jury the idea, gee, this guy must be a terrible guy, because if the if the government hit him with like four dozen or three dozen counts, they wouldn't do that to just an ordinary person. And the message behind that is in order to win the case, Basically, Trump has to win every count, right? He's got to get acquitted across the board. Mm. Bragg only has to win one count, and he gets Trump convicted, oh. which is what his, his mm. dream is, right? Mm. So why not do 34? You know, and if the, jury's, if the jury's having trouble with the case, they may say, well, you know, we'll acquit him on most of it, but we'll throw the state one or two. That's all Bragg needs is one or two counts. Mm. So he's playing games with the charges. Um, you know, the law behind the law supporting the charges is very weak, but I'm just taken aback by, you know, this idea that the people who actually have expertise and jurisdiction over these charges bring zero. Mm. And this guy who has no jurisdiction and New York does not have expertise in federal campaign finance law, he looks at it and he brings 34. Mm. You know, um, I hadn't thought about that, by the way. He only needs to win one. That's a really interesting point. Um, but Andy McCarthy, you're writing a National Review that uh, it's highly unlikely the payment, the so-called hush money payment, for which Cohn and Trump used their own personal funds, not campaign funds, was an in-kind campaign contribution. I mean, it really had nothing to do with the campaign, and it didn't pass through the campaign. This went through. This is something Barr said yesterday. Uh, yep. This went through, in a sense, Trump's personal account. The Trump organization is Trump and had nothing to do with the campaign. Uh, so that is, it seems to me, a weak link uh, in the so-called Bragg uh, prosecution theory. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, I, I think the way Bill explains it, <clears throat> I think, is very makes it very easy to understand. If you If you make... Um, a donation that is used for something like, say, polling Mm. during a campaign, it's pretty obvious that that's a campaign expense, right? And that's an in-kind contribution. But if you expend money that you would expend irrespective of whether there was a campaign, and it just happens to be contemporaneous with at the same time as the campaign, that's not an in-kind campaign Mm. contribution. That's an expense that you would have anyway. And in with with respect to Trump, it doesn't matter. You know, hush money is the term they use. It's a pejorative term. But non-disclosure arrangements are a staple of civil litigation. There's nothing wrong with them per se. And people in Trump's position make those kind of arrangements all the time. We all, Larry, how often do we hear about civil litigation where, you know, we hear that it was settled 
there was some financial arrangement that was made. We're not told the terms. Nobody admitted fault. You know, we hear all that kind of stuff all the time. Mm. This is a pretty common arrangement. But this is an arrangement that, from Trump's perspective, you know, if he if he had a non-disclosure arrangement with somebody who was a porn star, it was something he didn't want his wife to find out about. It was something that would have been humiliating. That's all the reasons that you do a non-disclosure arrangement in the first place. That doesn't mean it was a campaign expense. Mm. And the fact that, like, the other side says, well, but it was done on the eve of the election, uh, you know, as Bill points out, it was done on the eve of the election because that's when she had the most leverage to get the most money out of him that she could have gotten. That's not That doesn't make it a campaign expense. That means that she basically, you know, I don't want to use the term extortion, but she, you know, used the... It is extortion. Uh, it's leverage. extortion. Yeah, but, it's but she used the leverage she had at the time, right? I mean, well, you I can. Mean, there's would... a lot of litigation that we could call extortion, right? But the <laughs> the point is that she she used the timing. You know, if she had waited till the week after the election, I doubt that either Trump or uh, or Cohn would have been willing to lay out one hundred and thirty thousand dollars, right? So she, you know, she she struck while the iron was hot, but that doesn't make it a campaign expense. Do we know, Andrew McCarthy? Do we know? that Trump mandated or suggested or asked his then-lawyer, Michael Cohn, to make a payment? Do we know with certainty that uh, Trump wound up paying for this, either through his company or personally? Because we're dealing here, in the case of Michael Cohn, we're dealing with a convicted perjurer. There seem to be two sets of stories here. I mean, this yeah. was a point that Robert Costello, who was uh, Cohn's uh, lawyer at one point, uh, brings out, that Cohn has told two different stories. One story is that Trump asked him to do it and he did it. But the other story is that Cohn told Costello that he was acting on his own, that he wasn't right. mandated by, by Trump, that Trump didn't have a thing to do with it. I mean, do we know this? I think part of the reason that the Southern District of New York walked away from the case is that that tone is such a weak mm. witness. Mm. But I think what the what the DA is going to say about this is that they have recording of Trump speaking with Cohen uh, about paying a different woman at around the same time. So it's you know what they're is this the McDougal the McDougal woman yes exactly the so called right. Playboy so model. Right. So they have a a recording of that. They have a paper trail that shows that Trump did indeed pay uh, Cohen in monthly installments in 2017. Um, And they have some instances of Trump uh, pointing out that, uh, you know, Stormy Daniels had signed a nondisclosure agreement and threatening to enforce it against her. Mm. So and also Trump did at one point acknowledge that he had he had paid Cohen back. Um, so, you know, I, I guess they have enough, uh, at least, I don't think that's the laughable part of the case. I, I, you know, they can have all of these documentary records to back up the financial transactions. It doesn't make it a campaign finance violation. And as Bill Barr pointed out, um, to show that he falsified his records is not enough. Uh, because the statute says you have to falsify it with fraudulent intent. Mm-hmm. And as I, you, this is your side of the street more than mine, Larry. But, you know, what we're talking about is did he book it? Uh, did he book the reimbursement of a loan as the payment of legal fees? 
to my mind, it, it's an expense one way or the other. So it wouldn't it would have had a de minimis effect on, you know, Trump's uh, tax obligations and and the business record keeping. So I don't see what the fraudulent intent is. I think they're going to have a very hard time trying to show that. All right. Well, you call it bookkeeping shenanigans. And yep. I mean, I would just look, I don't know, but um, the Trump organization is a privately held company. Right. Uh, you know, eponymously named Trump. And my sense is that in all likelihood, um, he booked a lot of things through the Trump organization. That's the way the business was done. And yeah, no, I don't think that, Larry, I don't think that they're alleging that, um, actually, that there's anything wrong with them doing that. Andy, let me, would you mind? I got Greg Jarrett on the phone. Would you mind if yeah, we sure. brought him into the conversation? Yeah, of course. All sure. right. Yep. We have, uh, Greg Jarrett, my old friend. Are you on the, you on the line? I am absolutely. Uh, and I, uh, agree as, as I generally do with everything Andy just said. All right. Not me, but Andy. Andy's much smarter than I am. This is this is a this is a longstanding uh, thing. Greg Jarrett, folks, is a Fox News legal analyst. He's also a New York Times best-selling author. The, his latest book is called "The Trial of the Century." It's coming out May thirtieth. So you'll have to come on the show again, Greg. I'd uh, like to to to, to do that. Um, so we're talking about uh, to use. Um, Andy's phrase, bookkeeping shenanigans that Bragg would ordinarily not give the time of day. I'm reading from Andy McCarthy's uh, NRO article. Trump booked the reimbursement of a loan as if it were a payment of legal fees. Trump's then lawyer, Michael Cohn, laid out 130 grand on the eve of the 2016 presidential election to pay Stormy Daniels, uh, blah, 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 to keep quiet about the affair. So, Greg, why didn't Cy Vance run with that if it was so important or so clear? Why Why wouldn't Cy? I know Cy Vance very well. Um, Cy Vance didn't like Trump either. I don't think he's near as extreme as Alvin Bragg is, but putting that aside, if it's such a good case, why didn't Cy Vance do it, Greg Jarrett? Because he knew that the law does not support that kind of a charge, and the alleged facts don't amount to a crime <laughs> that uh, would support the law. Uh, it wasn't just Cy Vance that looked at this. The Department of Justice uh, previously examined the Stormy Daniels payment, and uh, they obviously concluded there was no crime, as did the Federal Election Commission, the FEC. Why is that? Well, because the law doesn't regard the kind of transactions that you and Andy have been talking about as campaign donations. Mm. Uh, you know, as long as there is a personal or commercial purpose, we'll call it a dual purpose, uh, that may or may not include benefiting the campaign, uh, it doesn't count as a campaign contribution. And it, as you were discussing, you know, he paid the reimbursement out of his personal funds, not out of campaign funds. Uh, but I, I also agree with what Andy has written recently, and that is that the statute of limitations bars bringing any action here. Mm. Yes, there are exceptions to the statute of limitations, but primarily the misdemeanor that is cited here is two years, the felonies five years. Uh, neither one of them can be told or paused 
if you uh, undertake a strict reading of New York law. Mm. Trump may have been outside the state's jurisdiction during the last seven years, but his whereabouts were well known. He maintained a residency in New York while president visiting it regularly. So I think it's unlikely that the two statute of limitations can extend beyond their expiration. And that will be, I think, probably the first motion to dismiss by Trump's lawyers. Mm. Fellas, um, can you just hang with me? i got to take a quick commercial break and sure. come back, uh, if you don't mind. This is great having both of you on. Uh, Andy McCarthy of National Review, uh, also a Fox News contributor, Greg Jarrett, Fox News legal analyst. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back with these two very distinguished gentlemen. Please stay with us. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Now back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I've got Andy McCarthy, former prosecutor, National Review and um, Fox News. And I've got Greg Jarrett of Fox News. Fellas, I just have a couple minutes before the half hour break, the national break. And then I... I'm going to ask you to stay another five or six minutes after that, if you can. If you can't, I understand. Greg, I just want to ask you something that's been troubling me. Um, it came up with uh, Andy McCarthy. The Playboy model, McDougal, I don't know, Susan McDougal, I don't know what her name is, something McDougal. Karen McDougal. Karen McDougal, thank you. Um, and this um, David Pecker, who used to run the National Enquirer, was a friend of Trump's, uh, the, allegedly, there was a meeting in 2015 between Trump, Pecker, and David Cohn, and it was about um, somehow money going to one or both of these women, Stormy Daniels and um, McDougal, uh, and that that's something that came up late. Um, Pecker testified for the grand jury last Monday, and some people think that was a decisive thing in bringing uh, in bringing the um, indictment. Um, do you know anything about this, Greg? Actually, I put it out to both of you because uh, there's a lot of allegations here, uh, but it's all very muddy. Uh, Greg, you want to take a whack at this before we have to break again? Well, secret uh, grand jury, jury deliberations are secret. We know that Pecker uh, testified early on before the grand jury and then returned as the final witness, which suggests that he was presented by the prosecutor to contradict something that someone else said, maybe Bob Costello, which was uh, Michael Cohen's uh, previous lawyer. Greg, can we stay with that? I'm awful sorry. I've got a national break. I've got to take this and then bring you back. And, Andy, if you would stay, if you can't stay, I understand. Sure, sure, Larry. We have another good five, six, seven minutes after this national break. All right. Greg Jarrett and Andrew McCarthy. We'll be right back with these two very distinguished gentlemen. Please stay with us. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Talking about the uh, Trump indictment with two very, very smart guys who have been kind enough to stay over on the air. Andy McCarthy, uh, former uh, prosecutor, contributing editor of National Review. And uh, Greg Jarrett, Fox News legal analyst, uh, and Greg's got a good uh, – that's a really cool book, Trial of the Century. That's about Clarence Darrow, isn't it? Is it it is indeed. Yeah. And, uh, you, you know, it was the Scopes Monkey Trial yeah. almost 100 years ago. I know, and, and it was a great movie. Um, anyway, that's out May 30th. Greg, uh, I didn't mean to interrupt, but – so, yeah, the allegation was uh, – this is something that worries me, uh, but it, that you have David Pecker – 
and Donald Trump and Michael Cohn in a meeting allegedly together and allegedly in 2015 and allegedly talking about funds going to uh, the Playboy model McDougal and Stormy Daniels. Um, do you know anything about this or what can you tell us about this? And Andy McCarthy, chime in, too. Yeah, you know, Pecker was the former publisher of the National Enquirer, and he would have, Larry, no firsthand knowledge of any false business records oh. because he's not within the Trump organization. Uh, and, you know, you've got to prove that predicate crime before you can move forward with a so-called uh, second crime of campaign finance. Now, we do know also from previous court records that Karen McDougal uh, wanted to monetize her tale, I emphasize the word tale, of sleeping with uh, Donald Trump, which he vigorously denies. And so she went to Pecker, uh, you know, trying to make money. And whether or not there was a conversation that involved Donald Trump, um, you know, we we don't know. But you still have to prove, as Andy had pointed out earlier, that whatever payment that was made to McDougal was done for the purpose of uh, fraudulently, you know, violating uh, with intent uh, the campaign finance laws. I, I just don't see how you get there. Andy, yeah, the one that I, I I would just add to that, Larry, that the, Greg is right, um, and the other thing here is this is so this is so de minimis. Mm. Um, I, I think John Turley, our friend, mm. uh, pointed out yesterday that uh, you know, given the way that Bragg enforces the law uh, or doesn't enforce the law, that if if Trump had actually like held up. Stormy Daniels with a gun and took 130000 from her, I saw Brad that. probably wouldn't prosecute that case on, <laughs> on the basis of the standards that he now keeps. But it, by contrast, if you look at what happened, whatever did happen with the bookkeeping, one of the questions, if I'm Trump's lawyers, that I ask this New York jury is, who got hurt by this? Because I don't see where there's any fraud whatsoever, regardless of whether the company booked this as the reimbursement to Cohen of a debt from 2016 or booked it as a stream of payments that were made to him through the months of 2017, they still expensed it. And there hasn't been any, you know, the Trump organization has been prosecuted for tax evasion. They didn't allege any of this in that case. There's not any indication that I can see that there is a victim here. And when you're dealing with one of these progressive prosecutors who has actual felons mm. in the city of New York preying on New Yorkers, and his practice is to take the felonies they commit and either plead them down to misdemeanors or not prosecute them at all. And then you take this frivolous thing, which at best is something that's incorrectly booked. Mm. And you turn it into 34 felony counts right. at four years apiece. I mean, of all the people in New York, Donald Trump is the guy they've decided to prosecute as if he was Nikki Barnes. I mm. mean, really? Yeah. And Greg, uh, Greg, Jared, you're saying that whatever these, however these expenses were booked, however they were booked, they had nothing to do with the election campaign. And that right. that's why the Federal Election Committee passed on it. 
But even if there's a dual purpose, and it, do, it, it does in an ancillary way benefit the campaign, under the campaign finance laws, that doesn't count as a donation. It doesn't count as a contribution. Mm. Uh, you know, the former chair of the Federal Election Commission uh, has tried to, tried to explain this uh, publicly and said, look, this this doesn't uh, count as a violation of the federal campaign finance laws. Um, and, you know, it was personally reimbursed. Uh, but that's really irrelevant. This kind of a uh, non-disclosure agreement, which is perfectly legal in, in New York and most places, in exchange for money, doesn't count as a campaign uh, finance violation. I'm sure the defense will have an expert on the witness stand, and maybe it's the former chair of the FEC, who says, sorry, th- this doesn't qualify. Just read the law. It's pretty obvious. That's uh, this chap Smith in the Wall Street Journal today. Uh, you know, I've forgotten his name. Hannity interviewed him the other night, right. and uh, I don't right. recall his name, but he was former chair of the FEC. Maybe Andy remembers. No, nope. sorry about that. Nobody remembers, because I never remember anything. Anyway. Well, he'll be a star soon enough. So. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna find and bring him on my show on Fox Business. Anyway, That'll make him a star. You're both terrific, Andy McCarthy, uh, former prosecutor, National Review, and Greg Jarrett, Fox News legal analyst. And Greg, uh, good look on. I love that the Scopes Monkey Trials. By the yeah. way, it was a fabulous movie. I've seen it, it really so many was. times. Spencer Tracy, Frederick March, <laughs> and Gene Kelly as H.L. Right. Mencken. They didn't look anything alike. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, gentlemen. You are spectacular. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. And on the other side of the break, we're going to do some boring economic work compared to this stuff. But we have John Carney of Breitbart and Mike Falkender of the University of Maryland and the America First Policy Institute. With How's the inflation and how's the recession? I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Larry Kudlow. Now back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to uh, turn to our economist. We've got uh, John Carney, Breitbart News Editor, Economics and Finance, co-author of the Breitbart Business Digest, and my pal Mike Falkender, Professor of Finance at the University of Maryland and the Chief Economist at the America First Policy Institute. Michael was the former Assistant Secretary of the Treasury for Economic Policy. Gentlemen, thank you. Thank you for hanging on. We had a little Trump uh, Trump grand jury indictment discussion with uh, some lawyers. So anyway, thank you for holding on. Uh, John Carney, here's a challenge. Let me see if I have this. Uh, getting into the mind of uh, Jay Powell, getting inside Jerome Powell's brain. Now, John Carney, that is a challenge for anybody, <laughs> economists, psychiatrists, probably pediatricians. That was a joke. But... <laughs> What are we saying here? And your other piece, the pa- the bank panic is not getting worse. The, and we will get to this, uh, but the numbers came out yesterday, the February personal income stuff, which is a very important release. The Fed watches all these PCE numbers. I, don't, I mean, inflation's come down, but I don't see it continuing to come down. So what's going to happen, uh, John Carney? What What's uh, Jay Powell's mind going to do about monetary policy? Well, so you have to 
ask, you know, from an economics perspective, and this is the way I approached it, is what is Jay Powell trying to maximize in his life? If he's rational, what is he trying to do? And I think you can just look at the way we look back at Fed, at the heads of the Fed. Arthur Burns is now kind of, you know, regarded as one of the failures as a Fed chief, whereas Paul Volcker is, you know, lionized as one of the greats. Now, this wasn't true at the time, by the way. Paul Volcker was considered a villain by a lot of people at the time, but his legacy is as one of the greatest Fed chiefs we've ever had. And so I think if you're Jay Powell and you are trying to decide what kind of policy stance do you want to adopt, you are going to say, look, I need to keep on inflation. Beating inflation is what makes your reputation, it's what makes your legacy, it's what gives you prestige as the head of the Federal Reserve. So when he is faced later on this year with a downturn, uh, with a you know likely recession either later this year or early next year, I don't think he is going to even be very tempted to start cutting rates because he will say, what will my legacy be? What do I want it to be? I want it to be Paul Volcker and not Arthur Burns. Mm. That's an interesting um, hypothesis. You know, Mike Falkender, Jay Powell's had, I guess you could say he's had a comeback because – uh, in 2021, he was very badly mistaken. He and the Fed institutionally, uh, there is no inflation or then it's transitory or then, wait a minute, we have a lot of inflation and they start jacking up their target rate like crazy and then launch uh, from Q, uh, QE to QT, uh, quantitative expansion, quantitative tightening. So you think uh, John Carney's right? I mean, I, logically, if you... Get inside Jay Powell's head. It's a new Jay Powell. See, I don't know how many Jay Powell's we're going to have to live through, Mike Falkender. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's, you know what I mean? It's like, uh, Jay, I don't know. What do you th- What do you make of it? I, I think John's got it about right. I mean, if you look at Jay Powell is more responsible than almost anyone else for the fact that we hit 9% inflation. Yep. There was no reason. I mean, Almost as responsible as, as Joe Biden, of course, in all of the spending that occurred under the American Rescue Plan. But, it, you know, to be frank with you, it seemed like Jay Powell wanted to be renominated for a second term more than he wanted to do his job. Mm-hmm. Because anybody else that really ha- was focused on inflation would have started increasing interest rates back in the middle of 2021. The fact that he waited until March of 2022 after his not, you know, go back and look at the video again as to once he got sworn in for a second term, that's when the language all of a sudden changed. And that told you a lot. But now he is, I, I agree with John, he's now got to resurrect his, his reputation because he's, he is now going to be known for the one that, that oversaw the highest inflation in 40 years and called it transitory. The question is, will Janet Yellen actually let him be an independent Fed chair, or is he going to continue just being another arm of the administration? You know, anybody who claims that there's independence of the Fed is going to have difficulty explaining the activity of the Fed over the last couple of years. So you are that's a really interesting point, Brandon Yellen, a former Fed chair herself. Um, So you are in Steve Mnuchin's treasury. Mnuchin, by and large, at least publicly, uh, and I agreed with him, I worked with him at NEC, uh, Steve Mnuchin did not wish to interfere with Fed policy, right? So he let That's them be independent, right. right? And Mnuchin, I think, will go down, by the way, 
with the tax cuts and other things and the things he did during COVID is one of the greatest Treasury secretaries we've had, at least in modern times. But um, you think Yellen might undercut Powell? You know, a few words here and there in a congressional testimony or in a speech, uh, Mike Falconer, you can really undercut the Fed. You think she'll might do that, or do you think as a former Fed chairman she won't do that? Uh, my, my sense is that there's a there's greater coordination between the Fed and Treasury, and that Powell is taking more of his marching orders from the Treasury than would have taken place with with Mnuchin. Yeah. I mean, you know, during COVID there was a great deal of coordination as required yeah. under Dodd Frank, right? Because we created all of those facilities, and they explicitly under statute require sign off by the Treasury Secretary. But Steve Mnuchin did not interfere with interest rates. You know, as much as the president may have wanted him to, right? I mean, there were times, as you well know, that the president was not particularly happy when Jay Powell in 2019 started raising rates. But Steve Mnuchin recognized that the Fed is an independent agency, and it was not his place to criticize. No, it. it's you're right. Listen, I just want—I was the hatchet guy there. I mean, Trump was furious, uh, and I happen to believe that the Fed was wrong in raising rates then, even though the economy was heating up because of the tax cuts. Um, I didn't see any inflationary pressures. So when it came to taking a few pot shots, uh, shall we say the president nominated me (laughs) and I, and I did. Uh, but I think you're right. Generally, there's a lot of coordination. Um, I don't know how y'all, I mean, he's going to, John Carney, your other point here, which relates to this discussion about fed policy, the bank panic is not getting worse. And you cite, uh, I mean, believe it or not, John, I know what H-4-1s are and stuff like that. Cause <laughs> I used to work in open market operations a million years ago at the New York Fed. But um, I think you're right. And uh, that will take a pressure point off of uh, Fed policy. So he'll probably, you're saying he'll do one more. I got to tell you, I mean, you might be right. And we'll get Falkender on this. But the numbers coming out of this, you know, the Fed uses the the price level indexes they use, the PCE deflator, personal consumption deflator, more than the CPI. So I'm just going to read it for everyone's benefit, if anybody cares. But uh, three months, PCE deflator is 4.2. The 12-month is 5.0. And then if you go into the core, excluding energy and food, which, of course, is what ordinary people use, but if you use that, the three month is four nine, and the twelve month is four six. So if I average everything out here, it's almost a little less than five percent inflation, with a target of two. So, John, I, the Fed funds rate is now four and three quarters to five. Is that right? So you're saying yes. they go to five to five and a quarter. That's barely above the inflation rate, unless it comes down some more. I'm, I'm just saying that the thing could go to six. The Fed's target. That's all I'm saying. It could. Uh, John Taylor told me the other night on the show that it will or should. I shouldn't say will. Should. So anyway, what do you, you're saying no more banking crisis, lingering inflation. Uh, they're going to have to. Fed's going to have to tighten more. And the bond market's wrong. Yes. So the bond market is pricing in a bunch of cuts. I don't think that's possible. Uh, I think that is really improbable. I think we're going to hear a lot. I don't think the Fed wants to go into the next meeting 
with this big of a divorce between where the bond market is and where their policy is going. So I think what we're going to hear over the next couple of weeks is a lot more hawkish tone coming from Fed people. We're getting I think Bullard is getting a speech on Monday. We will start to hear them saying trying to push the market towards their view. I love Bullard. I agree with you. I love Bullard. And by the way, you know, his protege is Chris Waller. Yeah, and Waller has been great. And one of the so I think we're going to see them push the market towards the view that rates are going higher. I agree with you that I don't think five and a quarter is actually where they need to stop. And if you look at the you know the inflation, so so we're at five point seven twelve month on the year over year median Cleveland Fed inflation. Mm-hmm. We've got zero point four more or less in September, October, November, December, January with zero point six. So, but then now we're back at zero for month to month. So, as I tell you, that tells you inflation is not coming down. Underlying inflation is running very high. All of those hikes have not budged month to month median inflation. So, I think the Fed has to keep going higher. I think they may take a pause depending on where the numbers come out. Because remember, we'll, we, we will get one more CPI, PCE, all of that before the next meeting. And then after that, the Fed will get more numbers coming in. And I think we, I agree with you that they probably need to go higher. I think they will see that. And again, because the numbers we saw in the Fed balance sheet report showed that banks, they drew a little more from one Fed facility. They drew less from the discount window. The panic we saw over the last two weeks seems to be subsiding. It could get worse. Maybe another bank will fail. But I don't think that's happening. I don't think we're having oh. the the the, the deposit panic we had. Well, what the hell? The Yellen and them, they all said they're going to guarantee all deposits. <laughs> Wait, why, why take your deposits out? Insured, right? uninsured, every damn deposit. By the way, this pausing stuff, I don't know if you're a bridge player or not, but the great late Charles Gorin used to say, he who hesitates is lost. I just wanted to inject that into it uh, because I'm an occasional bridge player. Uh, Mike Falkender the Atlanta Fed GDP tracker was marked down, I think, from 3.2 to 2.5 or 2.3. Um, and Kevin Hassett uh, was on the show, the business, uh, the Fox uh, Business Show earlier this past week. All these regional Fed manufacturing surveys, Mike, uh, are coming down. I mean, they're crashing down. In fact, I think, didn't we get the Chicago Fed? On Friday, that was down. So I don't think the economic outlook's very good. It's not that great. If you look at the PCE number for February, the real number was negative. Right? Yeah, right, so, you are. That's right, spending minus. You know, so they had a, there was a blockbuster January, but November, December, and February were all down mm. in real terms. Mm. So the economy is not in a strong position. Now, when it comes to the banking issue, I don't think we're going to have one because that facility that they created is so generous. Yeah, you've you've got ten-year treasuries that are trading at eighty to eighty-five cents on the dollar, and yet you can post them at par at the facility uh, with a with a one-year term to it. So they've definitely kicked the can at least a year uh, because nobody's. If if you did have a deposit run, first of all, as you said, there's no reason for a deposit run because they've all been insured. (laughs) Second, even if there were a deposit run, you would post it at the Fed with the facility rather than liquidate that way that you, you don't have to book the loss. So they've, they've kicked the can and that to me gives them an ability to continue raising rates if they need to. 
and they'll worry about these these bond losses that banks are sitting on down the road. You know, this really is a great country. You think about it. We have now uh, we have guaranteed all deposits in all banks, and we've sort of guaranteed all treasury bonds. I mean, you can hold them, and they're down. Uh, instead of a hundred cents on the dollar, the eighty cents on the dollar. But the Fed will loan you money by buying them back at a hundred cents on the dollar. I mean, John Carney, this is a great country. Everything's pretty much for free. I think it's called big government. It's big government socialism at its worst. Bailout nation. Bailout nation. Mike Falkender, John Carney has it through. That's the phrase. Bailout nation under Mr. Joe Biden. Folks, I'm Cudlow. We're going to do some stock market work on the side of the break. Please hang in there. Lots more cooking here on a Saturday. The Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. We'll reset. Join us during the week. Fox Business Network. The name of the show is Kudlow. 4 to 5 p.m. every day, Monday through Friday. And by the way, you can uh, get us here on the radio on the Internet. Live streaming the internet, LarryCudlowShow.com, LarryCudlowShow.com. You can hear us throughout the country. Actually, we've got about a, what have we got, about 150 affiliates now? I mean, that's pretty much right there, but you can get even more on the internet and around the globe and throughout the solar system and the Milky Way. So, let's do some stock market work. Um, pretty good week for stocks. Dow is up over a thousand points. Nasdaq up 398, almost 400 points. The S&P up uh, 138 points. And for the quarter, the first quarter, uh, the Dow was kind of flat, but the Nas was up almost 17 percent, and the S&P 500, the broad index, was up 7 percent. So, from the last two economists that were on in the segment before this, bailout nation is working. Stocks like bailouts. The banking crisis may. Be over. Whatever you own, they're going to bail you out. Deposits, bonds, stocks. What a great country this is. Big government socialism. So we have David Bonson, who's the founder and managing partner of the Bonson Group, and he's the author of There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths. I wonder if one of them is bail everybody out. And he has a video series. It's called No Free Lunch. <laughs> a six-part series in defense of free markets. I'm for that. We just don't have any. <laughs> and Jim Urio, director of TJM Institutional Services, Chicago's leading restaurateur. And he's, you know, they got a new, maybe a new mayor coming up. When's Jim Urio, when's that election? Uh, April 4th, I believe, this week. Paul Vallis versus Brandon Johnson. Brandon Johnson was one of these defund the police guys. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, he's trying to pretend he wasn't. Like, there's just all this video evidence of what, what the heck was that even supposed to mean, defund the police? But anyway, let's, let's not get me going on that. He's the, he's the teachers union guy, right? The teachers union owns him, right? They owned him. They, they gave him like three million bucks. And all of his top five donors are all the big unions. It's, it's absolutely crazy. <laughs> and the, uh, the other guy is, 
what a reformed socialist or what? Why does he? He's like, okay, he's, it's just, it, it, as long as it's just you and me and there's nobody listening. No, he nobody. sounded a lot like a Republican a couple of years ago, yeah. and now he's, I like him. I've done some work with him on the, the radio station here, uh, Salem Radio in Chicago, and he's he's a good guy. Uh, he used to say some really good things, and now he's saying some really weird things. But I think that's what you got to do to get elected in Chicago. Yeah, I think he's about eight basis points better than the teachers union guy. That's about oh, as far without as any point. question, without any question. And David Bunsen stocks love bailouts. Bonds love bailouts. Everybody loves bailouts. Bailout nation. What do you make of this? I mean, look, no free lunch video series. <laughs> I'm for that. But what about the rest of the country, David? Well, I guess it depends on what we think is getting bailed out, Larry. I mean, Silicon Valley Bank is at $0 a share where it belongs. There were, at the beginning of March, some equity holders of Silicon Valley Bank, including the team that worked there, that were really wealthy, and they're broke now. Uh, the bondholders, they uh, their bonds are at zero cents on the dollar. So there's no bailout for them. But, you know, the Fed has sort of existed for a few decades now as a quasi-bailout nation, and it turns up and down at different times, and no one knows exactly what the rules are. And uh, I think that there is an ambiguity underlying the financial system, and it did not start a month ago. It started at the financial crisis. Uh, some would argue it started before that. Um, but we are we are living in weird times. Yeah, well, so basically, you're right. The Silicon Valley people got hurt, but um, basically uh, Yellen... And uh, Yellen especially, that they're basically guaranteeing all deposits now. That's basically the way I read it. And then the Fed's going to buy your bonds back. They may be worth 80 cents, but they're going to buy it at, at a par at 100 cents on the dollar. So those Silicon Valley well, guys just got hurt, but everybody else is okay. Yeah, I mean, look, I think that we're talking about two different things, Larry. The um the issue of the Treasury bonds are not credit impaired, right? It is a, a duration risk. And it, we've just simply never seen something where um, a bank goes down with no impairment, no credit impairment whatsoever. Right. Uh, the no missed principal payments, no missed interest payments. It wasn't broken commercial real estate. It wasn't broken subprime mortgage. It wasn't broken high yield, like the savings and loan. And, and yet because people were running these things, it, uh, mark to mar- it weren't running at mark-to-market. Um, and the duration had killed them. Interest rates had skyrocketed higher. They weren't hedging. And so the Fed comes in and, and makes them whole um, on a par basis. The, look, I, I think that Janet Yellen is wrong to leave it implicit. Uh, if they want to say we're going to we're going to explicitly back all depositors, then fine, let them say it, and then let's figure out how they plan to pay for that. What the charge to the banking system will be. But what I learned from Fannie and Freddie is the only thing worse than bailing out, and the only thing worse than not bailing out is sort of bailing out and never really telling anyone what the rules are. That's what we're doing now. Yeah, well, some people would say it was pretty explicit, but it wasn't formally put into place. But look, this is a great country. There's only two banks, Larry. There's only two banks in the country that the depositors right now have been told they're backed. And I agree with you that the rest, there's no way if another bank went down, they wouldn't do it. Right. But that's not explicit. It's implicit. Yeah. Okay. Big government socialism. Is that explicit or implicit? <laughs> both. <laughs> Is it my turn? Yes, yes both. It's, it's, your, it's your turn. It's both. But just to add on what you guys are just saying, how about at the beginning, when Janet Yellen looked us all in the eye and said, if you banked 
at a bank that was insignificant, any small community bank or regional bank, you weren't going to be banked and backed, and the only people who were were going to be the huge banks that couldn't fall, fail, in her opinion. I mean, what kind of, that was chilling to me. It was like, what are you trying to do here? Have everybody pulled their deposits out from local community banks, particularly companies that are running their payroll out of those and flocking to Bank of America just because you can control Bank of America better? It's amazing to me that she said that, and I know she's backed off it, but and I, I kind of think – is she just a knucklehead or is she just someone who really wants to drive everything into the top 10 banks so they can control them a lot easier? And I do think it's a little bit of both. But to, to your point, Bailout Nation, I think it's sad as heck. And you and I have actually been discussing this probably for 20 years, mm-hmm. that I think Fed liquidity, bailouts, injecting money in the system is good for the stock market. It's sad that I think that. Like, It's nothing, nothing like enthusiastic about buying the stock market. But I do think if the stock market has a good week next week, I think it's it's more important than all these terrible fundamental things we are seeing where the market is complacent, believing that the bank problem is, is totally corralled right now, which I think is nonsense. But I do think the stocks could do do well. I want to see some strength on Monday and Tuesday, but uh, it's interesting to me. Well, that's important. That's important because it finished uh, finished the week strong. David Bunsen, um, do you think the stock market is poised for uh, more of a rally, whatever the um, whatever the rationale may be? Yeah, I think that a lot of the market probably is still. Like I was commenting in my weekly bulletin, energy stocks are trading at nine times earnings. Mm. Nine times. It's uh, barely half of its historical multiple. Um, the tech side is back up to 24 times. I don't. I think that's gotten frothy again, and there's always a sort of cool factor or popularity factor with some of that, and it's not the, the pool we swim in. But I do think that um, fundamentally – uh, earnings uh, are going to be very interesting this quarter, more more than last quarter. The the um, second quarter that will re- report first quarter results is going to give us a better chance to see where guidance is coming. And then now I do think that we're either at the point of a Fed pause or eventually a Fed reduction in rates, and the markets are going to be pricing that way ahead of time. And so there's just a, a very interesting dynamic where – I got to say, the Bears have had a very difficult time because they used two different rationales to say why we were going to drop thousands of points, and neither one came to, came together. For what them. What you mean when you say the uh, profits are going to be interesting? You mean interesting up or down? I think that profits are going to be uh, unimpressive as far as year-over-year growth, mm. but not showing a big deterioration. Mm. And you really need a deterioration of profits to give the bear something to cheer about. Jim Murio, uh, to David's point, um, a pause and then Fed rates come down. The last segment we had, uh, we had Mike Falkender and John Carney, uh, they felt that uh, the Fed's target rate was going to go up and that the inflation numbers, we got a fresh batch of them, the February personal income statement, you know, it's still running 45 to 5% inflation, the target is 2 and they think there's a disconnect uh, between you know, bond trading and maybe stock trading and what the Fed is actually going to do. Because I mean, I, some of these markets are pricing in, uh, as David just said, a pause and then rate a series of rate cuts. Um, they didn't think so. Which side of that trade are you on? You know, if I can't decide, I'm on the side of the market. And not, not only is the market saying rate eases, they're saying 150 points of eases 
by a year from this coming summer. Mm. So, I mean, it's not insignificant. And again, if you look historically, tightening cycles are usually met very quickly with easing cycles. And the reason that is, is because there's a tremendous lag effect to the tool that they use. These rate hikes, so inflation's coming down. You just acknowledge that. I believe that too. So then you must ask yourself the question, how much of that inflation coming down is from healing of supply chains, is from the federal government who's still acting in opposition to inflation coming down, but is not giving as much money to people who are spending it quickly. So those things are kind of coming off. M2 growth is coming down. Mm. So have the rate hikes even really hit us yet? If there's a six to nine month lag time, and some of them obviously have, and there's probably less of a lag time now than it used to be. But I think the Fed won't go anymore. And I do think the Fed will probably be easing, maybe not to the tune of 150 days points. But I think if they're smart, they'll see what's going on. Inflation is coming down. Supply routes are healing a bit. Um, I think if they're smart, they won't do anything. You know, it's interesting, sort of like, what is the Fed watching? Because the M2 money supply growth has come down. It's really plunging. The leading indicators index is plunging. Uh, these Fed manufacturing surveys are plunging. And, of course, the yield curve is deeply inverted. Um, so, David Monson, I, but those are – I guess one would say forward-looking indicators, which the central banks could and probably should look at them, but I don't think they do. I mean, they probably look, they just look at, I don't even know sometimes what they look at, but they do have this PCE deflator target, which is still hovering close to 5%. So it's like, which is, what should they do? Well, uh, what they should do and what they will do and what they have done are all three different things. And, and, as far as I'm concerned, what they should do is become humble and not believe that they're supposed to be the um, adjudicator of financial markets or the adjudicator of what the cost of capital ought to be. I do not believe that they were the primary cause of the inflation that we had, and I do not believe they're the primary cause of the inflation coming down. And my concern now is that we are reiterating this idea that the Fed is a deity, that the Fed is able to cure things that they're not able to cure. And because of my belief that uh, I'm a supply sider to the core, uh, inspired and mentored by my hero, Larry Kudlow, um, I think that the lack of production of goods and services for a two-year period of unforgivable lockdowns was the primary cause of inflation. Mm-hmm. And the Fed couldn't do anything about that with the interest rate. In housing, I think that it was a cost of capital was a big factor. But other than that, I really believe that the Fed has been given deity-like powers that they don't deserve. What they ought to do is nothing whatsoever at the next meeting. And then basically, Larry, what they're going to do is start to push rates down when they realize that we're in a Japan-like cycle of not being able to get the economic growth we need to get. We don't have enough supply-side aspects in the economy that will allow us to see 3 to 4% real GDP growth, and that's what we have to get to. The government can't afford the debt, and that's the Herb Stein line I've got to come back to. If something can't happen, it won't. They can't leave the Fed funds rate at 5%. Okay, our 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 country's uh, bond portfolio, uh, our debt profile is very short duration, and as these bonds are now uh, reinvesting at very very high rates of interest, the government can't afford it. Therefore, the Fed will not allow it to happen. Well, I think asking the Fed for a dose of humility is um, a noble statement. 
But it's a tall order, though. <laughs> but I think the Fed will never have a dose of humility. Can Give I it. push back on what David said just for a second, sure. there, real quick? Go right ahead. Okay, so so you say that that the supply chain locking everything down caused all the uh, you know, caused the greatest amount of the inflation, and actually I agree with you too. But I do think it's it's a little too forgiving. In June of 2021, when CPI had already printed five percent, the housing market was clearly on this parabolic run hotter. The Fed said it was transitory and then still bought $250 billion just of mortgage backs to support a housing market that was already flying. So even if the Fed is down your list of inflation causers, they certainly didn't do what they were supposed to do when the door was open at crack. Do you acknowledge that? Well, Jim, of course I do, but I think it's different than blaming them for piling on versus causing it. In other words, if what we're saying is a fire started and they didn't start the fire, but they came and poured gasoline on it, I'm totally with you. Good. Now, that right. buying of mortgage, the buying of mortgage bonds, to me, did not exacerbate house prices going up. It's even worse than that. It did nothing whatsoever. It was totally unhelpful, unnecessary, and basically distortive in financial markets. So this is one of the criticisms I've had with my friends on the right, Jim, through this period, is I want to hammer the Fed for exacerbating boom-bust cycles, for distorting markets, for intervening where they need not intervene. That's what they do. That's different than blaming them uh, for the inflation. I think. Well, I'll blame them for the inflation. I mean, I think yeah, they're one of the causes. I think fiscal and monetary policy, both sides, were vastly overly stimulative, going back to uh, late 2020, early 21. Both, both sides. I agree that this. Um, I I think the supply shortages uh, played a role, but I think the, the Fed monetized that every step of the way, and I think government spending uh, was actually in this particular cycle. The increase in government spending, uh, which essentially shoveled money into people's pockets and their deposits, was monetized by the Fed. So I, I would give them the bulk, the two sides, government spending and monetary policy. I would give them the bulk of the blame. But we have to take a quick break. We've got to take okay. a quick break, come back. You can argue against it. David Bonson of the Bonson Group, Jim Urio of TJM Institutional Services. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. I'm Ben Affleck, and I want to thank Radio 77, WABC. Welcome back, folks. We're talking stocks. We've got Dave Bonson of the Bonson Group, and we've got uh, Jim Urio, TGM Institutional Services. You know, Jim Urio, it's interesting that last week, uh, energy led the list up 6%, but you got a lot of six economic sensitive stuff, which surprises me. Uh, consumer discretionary up 5.6%, materials up 4.9, industrials up 4.4. Those are the, the big leaders. So that's sort of, I mean, you could say that's forecasting an economic rebound. I, I, I don't see an economic rebound. I see an economic decline, but I may well be wrong. What do you think about that? No, I agree with you on that too. And I'm not switching over to those sectors yet. And, you know, what I've liked the most since back since October has been, you know, gold, silver, and copper. And copper, I know, kind of falls into that, too, but it was kind of a, a play on China and, um, you know, uh, decarbonization movements throughout the world, too. So I'm still mostly on those. Now, crude has jumped into my list, 
too, mm. um, technically. And I'm not sure if it's a rebound thing, too, because part of it is China. Part of it is the fact that at some point in time, the U.S. is going to announce that they have to buy back some of the SPR, and I think that could move well. Um, but I want to settle maybe above 85, but then I think we could head up to 100 again in crude within the next six months, maybe eight months. You know, there was a good piece. I can't remember where I saw this piece that just said basically the election, uh, the midterm elections uh, were – I won't say one, but Democrats outperformed expectations. And the principal reason for that was the lower gasoline prices, uh, which were coming down a lot uh, in the second half of last year because of the strategic petroleum reserve sales. I mean, it was, you know, just a politically manipulated market. Yeah, and I'm not sure how huge a, a part it played, but it definitely played a part. Yeah. And that is, it's completely reprehensible to think about that. They can sell our stuff that we own just to get them a better spot in the election. I, I'm just amazed that that was happening when it was. You're it's right. Crazy. I mean, and, you know, David Bonson, it was absolute political interference, what, whatever weight you give to it insofar as the drop in gasoline prices are concerned. And now, uh, so you, you got it down. Well, of course, oil prices have come back a a little bit. I mean, they're in the mid, mid, mid to low 60s. At one point, crude is closed at 75, 67. Brent is a little higher, 79, called $80. But I don't know. Do you think they'll buy it back? They buy it back, it's possible gasoline prices will go up. I, I mean, the, the way the Bidens see the world, again, this is uh, bailout nation. They may not buy it back. We just damaged our uh, strategic petroleum reserve energy security. Yeah, well, uh, Secretary Granholm said they'd be buying it back at seventy seventy one. They had an order on the books in January when it hit that price that they canceled. It was uh, eight days ago, a whopping eight days ago that it was at sixty six. Yep. There were no orders. Uh, it's come back to seventy five. Um, this is one of the great secrets in, in oil markets. Everyone knows that there's a bid uh, for. They have to be refilling SPR. Mm. So will they try to delay it? Um, I'm sure they will. But uh, at some point, the some administration's got to fill that up. And, <laughs> and our U.S. oil companies got to meet that order. All right, kids. Thank you very much, Dave Bonson and Jim Urio. Folks, stick around. We're going to do some money in politics with Hogan Gidley and Steve Moore. I'm Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to do some money in politics. And we have my dear friend Hogan Gidley, former White House Deputy Press Secretary, bailer out of Larry Kudlow in Tough Jams. And presently, Hoagie is the uh, Vice Chair in the Center for Election Integrity at the America First Policy Institute. I just saw him in Washington. And my brother, Steve Moore, from Freedom Works and Committee to Unleash Prosperity Hotline, and his great radio show, More Money, follows this show on m- many of these fine stations. So, gentlemen, welcome. Um, Hoagie, I just want to, I don't want to spend, we, we've talked a lot about the Trump uh, indictment and so forth on the show, but I just want to ask you something that occurred to me. You, um Donald Trump is going to, unfortunately, spend many months going forward. I don't know how many months, but many months in a courtroom. 
because the indictment is going to lead to a jury trial. And um, the lawyers on the show earlier think, I'm talking about 34 counts uh, against him. They only have to get one to win, this far-left crazy person, Alvin Bragg. I don't know how he runs for president in a courtroom, Hoagie. That's my issue here. I don't, I know some people say, well, this helps Trump. I know it may help him from sympathy. Everybody knows how unfair this is and, and what a terrible, uh, what a terrible, uh, two-tiered justice system and all the rest of that. And I agree with that. But I think after the initial euphoria, I mean, he raised a lot of money in the last few days. I was reading, I guess, something $4 million just in recent days. But oh, he's going to be in a courtroom for quite some time. And I don't see how he runs for president in the courtroom. Well, Larry, um, I, I think it will be difficult. If anybody could do it, it's Donald Trump. But I would also say, if history is any guide, I would ask you this, a, a question with a question. How in the world can a president of the United States get tax cuts or trade deals that no one thought possible that actually benefited American workers for the first time, get peace deals in the Middle East, get hostages back, um, but make us energy independent for the first time in decades. Uh, be feared, loved, and respected on the global stage. How could anybody do that in the face of an, uh, a special investigation by Bob Mueller? How in the world could anyone accomplish all those things with 93% negative news coverage against him by all measurable data and metrics? That's the point I'm trying to make here is that how is he going to do it? I'm not exactly sure. I just know he and he alone can do it because he just did this in the White House in the face of an onslaught we've never seen before. And it was driven in large part because in 2016, the Democrats thought they had that one in the bag. And when they didn't, and Donald Trump threatened the power structure in Washington, D.C., it terrified the left. And so they decided we're going to go after him any way we can. And remember, it's not about winning uh, in, in court. Uh, an indictment's not a conviction. But Alvin Bragg's going to get exactly what he wants out of this. He's going to be the toast of the town. Everyone's going to praise him as a hero on the left because big bad Bob Mueller couldn't do it. Nancy Pelosi couldn't do it. But this ragtag, tough DA out of Manhattan, unbiased, unpartisan, he he found the truth and he got Trump, whether it actually turns into a conviction or not, all because Donald Trump upset the power structure. So they started this onslaught years ago. It continues today. And it's going to be difficult to run a campaign if you're in court. But I can tell you, if anybody in the world can do it, it's Donald Trump because he's done it before. Well, listen, the stuff, you know, you were talking about, so almost exactly what I said in my opening riff last night on the TV show, and I repeated it or paraphrased it this morning. I mean, I agree with his record of accomplishments is remarkable. And given a second term, uh, he would extend all that and go deeper and overturn the power structure uh, in Washington, D.C. Absolutely. But, you know, Steve, more to come to you. Um, you know, given Mr. Trump's achievements and so forth, uh, with which I think all three of us would agree, nonetheless, uh, you know, Democrats do almost anything to stop him from ever being president again. I mean, I think that that is part of the Trump derangement syndrome, and that's been part of their strategy. Uh, operating on a number of fronts, um, most of which I think are, are, are bogus. But it's awful hard. He'll have to be there every day. 
in that damn courtroom uh, hmm. fighting off the crazies. And I, I don't know how you do that, Steve. I'm just tossing that. There's other things I want to talk about here, but it's just that one point um, is of great concern to me. Well, I'll just say a couple of quick things. Number one, when we talked about this, I think a couple of weeks ago when the rumors first came out about the indictment, you know, if if uh, Joe Biden had even a teaspoonful of class, then he would he would um, give a pardon here and, and put this idiotic, ridiculous um, in uh, injustice and bring it to an end. I mean, any thoughtful person, I don't care a Democrat, Republican, independent, knows this is just a political witch hunt. It's incredibly unfair and it's bad for the country. And why, Larry, why doesn't Joe Biden just do that? I mean, this is lunatic. What's going on? Number one, that's number one. Point number two. Uh, look, I can't tell you how many people have called me in just the last two or three days who are not necessarily Trump supporters mm. who are saying, you know, I'm, I'm with Trump now. I'm back with Trump. Mm. People are so enraged by the injustice of this that Trump, if they, if they go forward with this, Trump is an irresistible force. <laughs> There's nobody. And we've got a lot of and you, you know, I, I'd be, remain pretty neutral in this race. I want to see all of our great candidates. But who's going to be able to beat Trump if they go forward with this? No one. Not in the primary. No way. He becomes an irresistible force, in my opinion. I don't know, Hoagie, if you agree with that, but I just don't see any. I, I've seen so many kind of people who are anti-Trump who started to say, is this really what the left is going to do to this man? Mm. Uh, it's outrageous. Well, if anybody can, I mean, I like I like that, Hoagie. If anybody can uh, campaign and win a primary, I mean, he still may be in court during the presidential race itself next year. I mean, <laughs> that's what's so insane. I mean, if anybody could, he could. But it just it just troubles me. And, you know, I think all these far-left Democrats – of whom Alvin Bragg is a card-carrying member. Uh, this is what they want. Bottle him sure. up. Make him go downtown New York every day, you know, and jury sits uh, from, I don't know, whatever it is, 10 o'clock until 4.30 in the afternoon, something like that. I mean, maybe, you know, Trump could, he, he can get around, but he's going to have to be in the New York area. So I, I just think it's hey, a hey, difficult can I, thing. Can I just inject one quick thing? You know, I remember after the Republican primary was over in 2016, uh, talking to, you know, the people he had beaten, you know, Ted Cruz and, and Jeb Bush and, and you know, Bob Van Carson. And, and one of the things they told me was like, they couldn't get a word in edgewise <laughs> with what they were trying to say because Donald Trump so dominated the media from the day he came down that escalator mm. to the day he was, you know, won the won the nomination. And I think it'll it could be just a replay of that where all of the rest of the field just gets completely crowded out in terms of getting any kind of message out. I, I think, if I may, I, I think you're right, Steve. Um, I, I think. His strategy, obviously, is to focus on the movement, to focus focus on the America First policies that made this country right. come to record-setting highs and record-setting time. And I think he has that ability, um, and he has the record to run on to do it. Right. Um, I, I do think that the movement itself is secure regardless of the nominee, but I, we're talking about Trump here. And you're right. He sucks all the oxygen out of the room when he's in it, when he gets in this race, and it forces the field to talk about Trump and not talk about what they want to talk about because right. Trump is going to be in the news. Now, the left, I think, is coordinating this, much like they did in the midterms, to try and put forth candidates they think they can beat. So I do think they, they're running the same campaign they ran in 2016 where they say, just make Trump the nominee, 
and right. I'm sure we can win. I right. say you do that at your own peril mm. for right. a myriad of reasons. But the fact is, um, what's happening in America is what's the problem here, and they see Trump as the face of it. Being if you're outside of That's an abortion right. clinic protesting, the DOJ targets you, and you go to jail. If you're a mom who cares about your school's uh, curriculum, what's being taught to children, they go after you too. If you are, um, you know, concerned that your child was trying to be trans behind your back in, in grade school, they're going after you. So now these parents who are no names in the middle of nowhere but are still fighting the fight for the U.S. Constitution, are looking for somebody to say, wait a minute, I, I don't have the voice. I don't have the microphone. I don't have the megaphone. Donald Trump is being falsely accused just like I am. Now all of a sudden you get these people, and 62% of the country feel as though this Alvin Bragg DA is doing this because it's politically motivated. 70% of those are independents. So if you think he can't win independence back, there's right. a number right there because they realize, wait a minute. This is a step too far for us, a bridge too far for us. We may not like the tweets. We may not like the personality, but, man, the policy was good, and we sure don't want our children. We sure don't want to be targeted by the government because that's what's happening right now, and if he can stop it, I'm with him. Well, listen, the courtroom, uh, I think they go home at 430. So he, <laughs> so, the, so the debates are in the evening, so you could probably get out for the debates. Yeah. Do, you, do you guys know what the number one cable news story of the last 50 years is by a mile that got by far the most viewers? Trump the O.J. No. Simpson trial. The O.J. Simpson trial. Yeah. By, oh, wow. by a mile. Right. Right. And so what I'm saying is you think that was big? Wait till are they going to have cameras, by the way, in the uh, courtroom? Don't know. That's a good question. They're not allowed to. They're not allowed to in New York, but I think they could oh, wait. Okay. And I, I would imagine Bragg would want to wait, but that's just me. I I don't know what the ground rules are going to be. To be honest with you, I have no idea. Uh, but I'm glad. Yeah, but hey, Alvin Alvin Bragg says cashless bail is okay. He says resisting arrest is okay. That's not a crime anymore. If I'm Donald Trump, maybe I just resist arrest because Bragg can't do anything about it. Well, Jonathan, obviously that's okay with him. Jonathan Turley, you know, distinguished uh, legal scholar, wrote a column saying Trump had been better off shooting Stormy Daniels because Bragg would have let him off after that. <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> this, this is Jonathan Turley. He's a very distinguished constitutional scholar. That's amazing. That's a great line. All right, let's take a break. Other side of the break, I want to talk about HR1 liberating uh, energy, and I want to talk about Kevin McCarthy pushing workfare and work requirements. We're here, folks, with Hogan Gidley and Steve Moore. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking money and politics with Hogan Gidley, who's a former White House Deputy Press Secretary. He's now the uh, Vice Chair of the Center for Election Integrity at the America First Policy Institute and Steve Moore of Freedom Works and Committee to Unleash Prosperity. And Steve Moore's great show, More Money, follows this broadcast on most of these uh, or many of these same stations. Steve Moore, start with you. Um, I am very impressed with Kevin McCarthy and Steve Scalise. Two things quickly here. Number one, uh, H.R. 1, which is the uh, Lower Energy Cost Act, uh, which we've all been pushing. Uh, they unveiled it a second time at AFPI on Monday, but – you know, this would reopen the spigots for fossil fuels, uh, would also help renewables, 
but it's a pro-growth measure. It's good for more growth, and it's good for lower inflation. And secondly, Steve, Kevin McCarthy, in his letter to Joe Biden, emphasized the need for work requirements. Um, I had Jason Smith of the Ways and Means Committee on last night. He's pushing workfare. You know, you did the numbers on this for the Clinton days. It would uh-huh. be worth close to a hundred billion dollars, right. but most mm-hmm. of all, it would get people back to work. So I, I like what the GOP House is doing, Steve Moore. Yeah, Kevin McCarthy's off to a great start, and you know, I had some skepticism about uh, Kevin McCarthy, but I think the best thing that ever happened was this rebellion. It's really given him some a big stiff spine now, and it's fantastic to see how he's really leading this conference in a very positive way. I'll just make one observation I thought was really quite – people got a good laugh out of it when the White House said that uh, the um, H.R. 1 bill, which allows more drilling, more production of American energy, was going to raise prices for yeah. consumers. Yeah. And we're, we're all scratching our heads saying, well, wait a minute here. This is Economics 100, folks. If you increase the supply of something, its price is going to go down, not up. So uh, I think they've got their economics a little backwards there at the White House. And uh, this should be a top priority, both of those things, producing more oil and gas and coal and all of our energy here at home because it's an economic and security issue, Larry. It's for mm-hmm. national security as well. And number two, let's get people off of welfare into work. When I testified about that before the House uh, Workforce Committee, the Democrats all opposed it. No, 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 no work requirements. And, you know, why? Why not? You know, Hoagie, I love the fact that Joe Biden and the Democrats are opposed to work. I don't just think that I somehow don't think that's a winning issue for them in 24. But let me ask you, because you always gave me good political advice. Should people work or should they welfare? They should they should absolutely work and they want to work. Uh, You just have to make the conditions right for them to do it. Um, You know, this isn't new stuff either. You guys are talking about policies that were implemented not too long ago. The um, the uh, the work requirements that we talked about years and years ago, we saw the 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 um, you know the benefits economically in this country, but you know, Steve put hit on something really strong here about uh, energy independence and how it is a national security issue. These are issues to me that are fundamental. And, and if if the old lie from the Biden administration that this is Putin's price hike, you remember when he tried to yeah. pretend this was Vladimir Putin's fault that we were paying more yeah. prices for ga- uh, higher prices for gas? If that was true, let's just play their game for a minute. If it's true then wouldn't that be the number one reason to get off of energy from other countries so you're not beholden to the dictators and despots all around the world and the prices they set? Wouldn't we want to set our own prices? I mean, it just makes the argument for itself. But on on McCarthy starting strong, I, I think you can get rid of Donald Trump's policies through legislation. You can overturn his executive orders. But if there's one thing Donald Trump gave the party that I think isn't going away, it's the ability to fight. And say it's okay to stand up and say no more. And also, don't waste time thinking. If you soften your stance, the media somehow is going to give you a fair shake. They're not. So you move forward with the policies you know are right that will get this country back working. They'll open up the spigots for, for oil, for natural gas, for all energy. That's how you get things done. And, and to hell with the left. And the media, because they're never going to be on your side, regardless of how much you, how much ground you cede to them. You know, Steve, I think McCarthy is out jockeying Biden right now. Yes, on this debt ceiling stuff, because yes. McCarthy's letter was very specific. You know, I mean, it didn't have numbers in it, but in terms of the policies, discretionary spending, for example, 
warfare, for example. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was, uh, it was, and, and he mentioned, and, uh, HR1, the energy cost, uh, reduction bill. I mean, he, he, and Biden's just sitting there, you know, sort of yeah. whining, show me a budget, show me a budget. Well, th- this is not the budget time. This is the debt ceiling time. And McCarthy weighed right in and, you know, Biden doesn't want to go on another date. He doesn't want to have a cup of coffee. You know, he, he, I mean, I told McCarthy, take him to a drive-in movie. Get one of those old 1960s cars that had bench seats, you know, and go to a drive-in movie. Maybe smooch a little. But Biden won't smooch. I think he's going to look worse and worse, Steve Moore. Well, I don't know. That idea of Kevin McCarthy and uh, Joe Biden smooching. I don't know. It's a scary <laughs> thought. It's a scary thought, but, uh, isn't it? Yeah, I know. Um, look, I think that, but, you know, Biden's position is indefensible. It's basically he's just uh, acting like a spoiled sixth grader and saying, yeah. I'm not going to negotiate. Yeah. And Americans want a negotiation here. Mm-hmm. They understand that government spending and debt are completely out of control. And so he's got to stick to his guns. This is the key moment. I call it the come to Jesus moment for the Republicans. They have to stand together here and say, we're not going to let this you know, train go over a financial cliff and destroy our country. And so he should stick with it. And so far, he's been really strong. Yeah, you know, Hogan, uh, a lot of people say, oh, gee whiz, the House Republicans not going to matter. They only got five vote majority or whatever it is, and they won't be able to make an impact. I would say to you, they're already making an impact and they're already putting their best foot forward on, you know, conservative free market economic growth and prosperity policies. I mean, it's really a, a changed atmosphere. I think Biden and the Democrats and Chuck Schumer are on their heels, Hogan. They are. And I'll tell you, Kevin McCarthy, you know, we kind of, chuckled about how much he wanted this job and for how long he wanted it. I mean, he ran for it before and didn't get it. But sitting off to the side the way Kevin was, he also got to get some experience and learn more about the operations, not just of politics, mm-hmm. uh, not just of policy, but of the maneuvering you need to do to try and wrongfoot your opponent. Mm-hmm. And I think he's come out of the gate with some strategy. He's come out of the gate with some policy, with some media prowess that I don't think the left was quite ready for. Now, it'll probably settle back down, and we'll have some more you know, bigger fights on the national stage here. But right now, Kevin McCarthy looks like, hey, I'm here for the American people. They elected us to do a job. I'm going to do it uh, regardless of what you guys are going to say. But also, he's got some tricks up his sleeve that I think had he been elected years ago when he first ran for speaker, I don't think he would have been yeah. able to employ, and I don't think he would have been able to um, have experience with so he'd have the upper hand like he does now. All right, kids, terrific stuff. Those are all great points. Hogan Gidley and Steve Moore, thank you very much. Steve, have a great radio show coming right up, folks. Moore's Money. I'm Larry Kudlow. I'll be back next weekend. Thanks very much. 